0: we should be learning to call in folks versus calling out folks, right? What is your goal for the conversation? Is your goal to be able to build with one another? Is your goal to shame somebody, right? So it's really focus on your goal. Call in people. My mentor, Harry Belafonte, always says you need to meet people where they're at and champion them to your cause, right? So it's not about shaming. It's about really being able to understand and dissect the conversation.
1: That was Carmen Perez, activist and national co-chair for the Women's March on Washington on engaging in daring conversations to gain support for your cause and drive lasting change. And this is Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women, an audio series that offers timeless insights from our archives to help you advance at work and in life. This session, Authentic Activism, How to Create Lasting Change, features a panel of pioneers who will share their personal experiences in driving positive change in the workplace and the world. Learn what it means to be an authentic activist, how to create a clear vision, inspire supporters, and persuade decision-makers. This conversation is moderated by Francesca Ramsey, a comedian, YouTube personality, author, and as she coins herself, an accidental activist. Let's get started so you can meet our panelists.
2: Hi, I'm Francesca Ramsey. Thank you so much for joining me. This panel is all about authentic activism. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with these incredibly accomplished women. I think what really drew me to this panel is we are in challenging times where I am very happy to see so many people standing up for the things that they believe in. But we also don't actually talk about the practical application, right? It's not enough to just change your Facebook profile picture. It's... (laughs) Y'all felt that one? (laughs) I'm like, who have you actually spoken to? So it's not just enough, right? To just say that you're an activist or to put the bumper sticker on your car or retweet that article. I do think that those things are important, of course. But what does that actually look like day to day, especially in the workplace, right? And so we've got three incredible women here Who are in various stages of their career. And I think when we talk about actually standing up for what's important to you at work is really scary, right? Because you have bills to pay. So how do we actually advocate for the things that are important to us in a way that doesn't make us the center of attention, does not threaten our superiors, does not add unnecessary spotlight on ourselves and take away from the work that we want to do. And so that's going to be the focus of this discussion. And I'm going to ask each of our panelists to say a little bit about themselves because I know it does feel kind of weird to hear someone list off your act. <laughs> and of course, you're going to be able to say in a more authentic way the things that you're most passionate about and excited in the work that you're doing. So I'm going to, I'm going to hand it off.
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Max Hodges. I'm the Executive Director of Boston Ballet in the Performing Arts we have an unusual structure common for us, unusual elsewhere. It's a co-CEO model. So I lead the organization in partnership with our artistic director, Nico Nisinen. Boston Ballet is a big and established nonprofit organization. We've been around for 55 years. And one of the hallmarks of Boston Ballet is our commitment to education. We have one of the largest ballet schools in the world. And it's also the breadth of our repertoire. So we perform the big classical ballets. Swan Lake Cinderella, but we also perform cutting edge contemporary work by some of the world's most exciting living artists. My name is Christy Dunchak, so
4: I'm the Senior Director at uh, Johnson Controls and Product Management, and I work for a division that basically keeps people safe. So it's fire and security, and there's, I feel very passionate about this. We have a lot of innovative products and in product management. I get to help bring those products to market and bring the voice of the customers back to the organization and make sure that we bring a product that people care about to market. I started in engineering. I worked in engineering for, for 10 years and then moved into marketing and really find my passion there. you. Okay.
0: Awesome. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Carmen Perez. I'm the executive director of an organization called The Gathering for Justice, and we work around building a national movement to end child incarceration. We were founded in 2005 by Harry Belafonte, who was part of the civil rights movement and also an actor and an activist. I am also one of the national co-chairs of the Women's March on Washington. And so my role within the Women's March was to bring on the ideology of King in on violence, which is part of my organization's foundation as to how we enter communities in organizing and engage people in political activism. I was also responsible for bringing 24 individuals, I will say women, femmes, gender nonconforming and trans women to come together to develop the unity principles that created entry points for women and and people of all nations to entry points for them to march for something versus against something. But my passion is really around bringing people together. I call myself a bridge keeper, bridging gaps between youth and elders and those that have access and those that don't. I started when I was 17 years old as a result of the death of my sister who was buried on my 17th birthday. That was January 21st of 1994. So to be able to be part of the Women's March in January 21st of 2017 was something that was, I think, part of my path for a very long time. So I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: So Christy, I'm going to start with you. Activism comes in many different forms. It doesn't have to be specific to specific social or global issues. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to be an activist in the workplace in terms of starting or leading a project? And can you give some recommendations when it comes to people in this audience wanting to start those projects or those conversations in their workplaces? Sure, absolutely. So
4: I've experienced starting projects of which I have known nothing about. And I'll be honest, I panicked at first as many times as I have done it. It's just that fear. Oh my goodness, how am I going to get this done? And then I take a couple deep breaths and I really go back to what I know has worked for me in the past. I take it back to the basics. Learning. There's been times when I've gotten books on a technical subject because I wanted to talk the lingo. I wanted to be able to ask the right questions in the right way. And then I form a cross-functional team. A team of people that know a lot more about the subjects of their areas than I do. And when you're forming that team, you also have to be able to sell the topic. It has to be tied to a vision, a purpose, a strategy for why you need their time. But once you form that team, then they bring all those great ideas to the table and they really help you structure your plan. And by doing that together, you create credibility with that team And you make sure that you can pinpoint all the different areas that are important to the project. But then also they become that person that's going to help you sell it throughout the organization. It's not you selling it, so you broaden your voice. They're selling it to their management and their peers, and you can be energized by that. So that's usually how I start those types of projects. But you also have to be willing to listen them and be flexible it may not be your idea and you may have to rework your project multiple times but if you're flexible you can really shape a good project
2: oh i love that so much something that has been really helpful for me is thinking about speaking up instead of speaking over and i think oftentimes a lot of well-meaning people are like let me tell you what it's like and it's like but you don't know what it's like you have to actually listen right And so what better way than to bring in members of those communities and say, I actually don't know. I want to share the experiences of other people. So I really love that. Carmen, I think you will have a really interesting perspective here on the idea of being an activist versus being an organizer. And I know there are some people that really reject being called an activist because they look at themselves as an organizer. And I loved what you said about being a bridge builder. Can you just talk a little bit about the difference between activism and organizing? And should we be striving for one over the other? So that's really a question that I often try to reconcile. I think
0: oftentimes when we think about organizers, we're like, oh my God, I don't really know if I can be an organizer. But as moms, we organize schedules. We are natural organizers. Mm -hmm. And I'm a new mom. I have a three-month-old that's sitting over there with my husband. And I have to like organize a pamper. Like it's just a whole different method to the madness than I had ever been exposed to. So when I think about an organizer, I think about who we are as individuals and as women and how we naturally organize things. That's something that you don't necessarily have to be taught as an activist, I feel like not everybody is active because something in their life has not activated to act. For me, it was when my sister was killed and buried on my birthday that I felt I was becoming an activist. But I think the word activist is kind of trending right now, right? I think it's on everybody's social media. And so what I would welcome people to really dissect is what role do they want to have within any type of movement, right? You were talking about the workplace. For me, organizing events, thinking about long-term sustainability as a person who is labeled an activist, I really try to think about the next seven generations, considering that what we do today obviously impacts the generations moving forward. I'm really an organizer, but then I dig deeper and I say I'm a bridge keeper. And then I dig deeper and I say, really, what role do I want to have in this place? And it shifts right? within the Women's March. People label me an activist because they only see the two years. They see that visibility, right? They don't necessarily recognize that. Before those two years, I had been organizing 18 years and no one knew where I was. I was in the prisons of El Salvador with MS-13 and 18th Street trying to broker a peace truce, right? I was in the prisons of California or I was working with girls that were impacted by the criminal justice system. But because they only see the visible women's march and that's Carmen Perez and I hear her speak and she's powerful, I'm labeled an activist. But I feel that not everybody is an activist because not everybody has been activated to act on something that they're truly passionate about. But I feel as individuals, we all know how to organize something. We've made mistakes. We knew who not to invite to the party. We knew what favors to put out, right? We knew what company label, how the flyer was going to be made. We are all natural organizers. And if we took that to a different level, you could apply it at every level. It starts small. I used to help young people get jobs and they didn't have any job experience. And I would say they're like, well, I don't really know how to be in an office and I'm like, do you know how to answer phones? Do you answer the phone at home? Do you tell them, please hold, I'm going to get my mother or do you want me to take a message? It's the same thing is that we forget that the basics, right, Mm -hmm. could be applied in our workspace, in our communities, in the state offices, wherever it may be. And so I really welcome people to really think about what your role is in whatever you do, whether it's being part of a movement that is larger than yourself or being part of a, a work task force or being part of a community board. There's a role for you. You just have to define it for yourself.
2: That's a really great way to think about it, especially because oftentimes I know that I get really overwhelmed when you think about the scale of a problem. and you think, I'm just one person, what am I going to do? But breaking it down and thinking about the ways that you're already doing that work in other areas of your life is really great advice. Thank you so much for that. Max, you started your career in the for-profit sector. What prompted your change to now being in a more artistic field? And can you talk about how that transition helped you do more meaningful work with the ballet?
3: Yeah, thank you. This is so fascinating. I think part of what we're unpacking here is how many different ways there are to approach this question of how to forge a life of meaning and diversity even amongst this panel and I expect certainly in the room. So for me... finding my way to a life of meaning was about a pretty big career change. So I started my life in the for-profit sector here in Boston at Bain, a company that I love. And I am deeply grateful for the education, really, that I got at Bain and how it positioned me for an impactful career. But I reached a point in my work at Bain where I wasn't finding enough personal meaning for me in the work at the end of the day. And that's when I started to think about making a switch and testing a hypothesis that I had, a kind of secret flame I held within myself that I might really want to work in the arts and that the arts might be a good home for me and a place where I wanted to have a mark or leave a mark. And so my very first job in the arts world was in the finance department at the Museum of Modern Art. So I got to use my skills in a very different context and test this hypothesis tested true. And essentially, since then, I have built my work in the arts and my career. I've been very pleased with my career and grateful for the work that I get to do every day. And, you know, there are a couple of different ways to think about it. And, And when I was thinking about that we were likely to be speaking with today, I expect there are lots of people in this room who are really thoughtful about their careers, really motivated in their careers, work really, really hard And so when you think about how much of yourself and your effort you put into your nine to five career, if you will, it became really important for me to spend an equal amount of effort kind of pointing myself in the right direction before I started running really fast. And so again, testing that hypothesis and refining that hypothesis and from MoMA to the performing arts world where there's a lot of art making. I mentioned kind of commissioning new work from cutting edge artists. I think the creation of art is part of what I consider my role in activism or our contribution. And so testing and refining that hypothesis and really committing to a big change was important for me.
2: So I'm curious, you know, when you make this career change and maybe Carmen, you can speak to this too. When you're doing something that is maybe a little less traditional, have you found that people in your life don't really get it? Because for me, leaving like a corporate job to make internet videos, my grandmother was like, Are your clothes on? And I was like, Yes, I'm making videos. Right. So like you go from finance to then working in the arts, you're an organizer, you say, I'm a bridge builder and then you have family members. Again, I don't want to project this onto you, but I know my family members are like, how do you pay bills? What does that mean? Have you ever found that people in your life maybe don't understand the direction that your passions are taking you in? How do you wrestle with that? Like how do you say like, this is the thing that I know I want to do? I know that this has purpose for me, even if you don't get it, Right now, I know this is the direction that I need to go in.
0: I certainly, when I was younger and I was going into prisons, my mother, I had gone away to university. I'm the youngest of five and I'm the only one who went away to college. And so they thought I was going to go into this role of making a lot of money. She's the only one who's gone to college and we're so proud of her. And then I'm volunteering my time to meet with men that are incarcerated and providing cultural and spiritual programming for them. And my mom was just kind of like, what happened? (laughs) Like, what did we do with you that because everybody else is in real estate and they make a lot of money and they're like, but you're the one who went to college. So you're supposed to build your own business. And so for many years, I would come home. I lived about five hours driving distance in California. And I would drive home and for the holidays, people would ask me things and I would respond with my passion and my voice would get loud and my arms would start shifting. And, and at some point I knew that I needed to find a way in order to engage with family members because there were moments in which there was a lot of judgment towards me. Like you need to get a real job. Why do you go and sleep on floors with people in Flint? Why do you even care? And I used to say, because my humanity doesn't allow me not to do anything. And so I always led with my heart. And so for a long time, I just never talked about it. And I would say for about 15 years, I didn't share unless there was that one family member that would be like, oh my God, Carmen, I saw you on TV and I'm so proud of you. And then of course you talk about the five years that you haven't talked about, right? And so you sit in a corner with them, but it wasn't until recently. And unfortunately now my family really is worried about my safety because of just the visibility and the access that people have to your life. And I tell people, I tell my friends, like, you don't have to go home with your passions. Just test the waters, right? But then now I'm saying have courageous conversations, which is kind of like I'm saying be bold with what you believe in. But
2: for a long time... At the root of that is the idea that you have to... Pick your battles, right? Of course. And that there are some conversations that you know you have to push yourself to have. But sometimes you have that family member where you're like, this is emotionally draining me to do this work. And I know for me, you have to decide who you have relationships with and what that relationship looks like, right? Like I've had this conversation with you. It's in our work the relationship is going to change, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can still have those creators' conversations. But like, as you're saying, you don't have to do them all of the time and, and you can set up for yourself a space that feels more authentic. And...
0: and we have to learn how to turn it off. Right. Right. Not that being an activist or an organizer or passionate about something, you have to just say, I'm not going to be passionate about it for 15 minutes because I want there to be like a very cordial conversation. But it's more so like I want to be able to rest. And I think my family for me then became kind of where I rejuvenated, but it's
3: complicated.
2: So agreed. Yeah. Christy, being an activist involves the ability to influence and educate other people. What are some of the lessons that you have learned or maybe are still learning? when it comes to persuading teams and decision makers and how those lessons changed your approach. And I think that's a great segue to this conversation about not always having to be on and deciding when and where you actually reach out to people and how you do that.
4: have many lessons learned. So there is a book that you probably have heard of, the Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I think I've read it like three or four times now. And there's two things that I always pull out and it's seek first to understand, then to be understood. And the second one is around knowing your circle of influence and being proactive. And so if I take the first one and recall my other answer about forming those teams, well, if you form a team, you actually have to listen to them, right? you can't come to the table pushing your ideas on them. Some people think, okay, influencing is about how can I get in a room of people and convince them why I'm right with my decision. You have to take a different approach and say, how can I convince them that their thoughts matter and energize them? And so there's been times when I haven't done this really well and times I've done it really well. So one, some I have and some I haven't. And I've gotten some strong feedback from management that basically came to me and said, the team doesn't think you're listening. So my advice is to to pay attention to your team. Understand, are they coming up to meetings? Are they participating in the meetings? Do they feel energized? And if they're not, it honestly could be you. And are you really listening to them? So take a step back and, and pivot to make sure that you're getting the feedback that you need. The second one was around the circle of influence. And I think there are things that we can control and can't control. And you cannot control other people's reactions. You can control how you respond to those reactions. And so you want to make sure that you're spending your time in areas that you know you can influence. So if you are working on a project and you reach a dead end, don't just throw up your hands and be like, Oh, my project's done. I can't work on it, boss, because of all these reasons and complain about it. I've complained for a little bit. And then I'm like, okay, how can I be creative? I cannot influence this. I tried. I still need to get this done. What are some other ways that I can do it? If I have resource issues, can I outsource it? Can I borrow people? What else can I do? So don't spend too much time on something that you can't actually control and try to refocus your energy. Those are my two.
2: I really appreciate you talking about knowing your role within the team and what everyone's strengths are. I use the analogy that Allyship is a lot like Destiny's Child. There's only one Beyonce. (laughs) Everybody looks cute, but like Beyonce had the cutest outfit, right? And we're like there to support her. And I think that it's the same. You know, we're all doing the step. Only one of us has visible abs. So I use myself as an example to say, look, who's the team, right? And what's my role? And how do I fit in here? And like... For example, as a straight person, I want to support LGBTQ folks. I can't make my voice the center of that conversation because I don't know the experience. I'm going to be doing the step in the back. Like, let me know how I can help you, how I can uplift your voice, right? And I think that can be very difficult for people because I want to shine. So I really appreciate thinking about your role in the workplace in a similar way. Like, let's all work together, but let's figure out who's going to shine here and how I can help make you shine. So thank you so much for that. Carmen, what is the balance between capitalizing on a cultural moment to start a conversation in the workplace versus using that moment for self promotion? And I'll give you an example. We're seeing a lot of brands talk about activism or talk about feminism as a way to sell products versus actually having honest intentions about supporting that issue. So, how do you suggest that we as individuals avoid making issues all about ourselves instead of making the issue about the issue. That is
0: such a... Because we see that in everything right now, right? There's a lot of celebrities that have now become ambassadors for certain issues, right? And they often just have talking points. I think for me, it's really about building transformational relationships versus transactional relationships, right? It's not about a transaction that you and I have together, like I need this from you and then you need this from me. But in regards to brands, it's exactly to what you were saying, bring those that are directly impacted by the issue to come and educate folks and figure out how we're not tokenizing, we're not using people as ornaments, right? But that we're really building this transformational relationship so that the brands can have the same intention that people who are actually doing the work have. And so it's important to work with one another. I worked with Colin Kaepernick and Colin and I, for many years prior to him taking a knee, would have these political debates because he really cared about the issue around police accountability. Mm -hmm. And so... It took many years for him to take a knee and know what the repercussions were going to be for that. And now Nike has come on board and has said, hey, like we're going to support you, Colin. But then Nike also has a different way of being in other countries, right? And so there has to be a balance as to how brands and individuals who are actually connected to the issue collaborate with one another to really have not only an impact, but also to be intentional about the way they show up in communities. And to your point about feminism and feminist movements, I think right now what we have seen is we are a woman-led movement. And there are a lot of mistakes, right, and complexities within that. And there are brands that will have I am a feminist or Black Lives Matter, but the person who's wearing the Black Lives Matter shirt is not Black and they're selling the t-shirt. And so we see that all the time within our team. We have a team called Justice League NYC. And I say, we come together like Voltron. (laughs) I don't know if y'all are old enough to know who Voltron (laughs) is, but, you know, Transformers. But to your point, there's a different role. And we have people who are communications folks. We have people who are hip hop artists. And what they're able to do is kind of say, hey, like, this is what we've seen. Let's figure out how we could reach out to the brand and have a real conversation about the way in which you show up.
2: So I think that's a great segue to Max to talk about, you work for a company that is long established that has a lot of infrastructure. And so when you're at a new company or you're in a startup, it's a very different culture when it comes to setting different practices in place versus coming into an institution that's been there maybe even before you were born. So. How do you see an organization like the one that you're working for or other more established places redefining themselves to stay relevant and to maybe show people that they are interested in these issues and these topics in an authentic way and that they want to give back, right? Especially when maybe people have one perception of that brand. And now here we are moving into 2019, how do we like reinvent ourselves?
3: Uh, Yeah, I think that's a terrific question. I do think we're at a key cultural moment where relevancy can't be taken for granted and where even a deeply mission-driven nonprofit like Boston Ballet or any other mission-driven nonprofits out there can't be complacent about their role in our culture and their relevance. So at the ballet, I would say we think about this in two ways. And I would say that this is the second way in particular is really still evolving. I do not think that we have this totally figured out, but that's what makes it interesting. The first way I have to say is our art making. And in this field, I truly believe that the creation of new and relevant art can change the dialogue, can change minds, can have an influence on our culture. And so the commissioning of new works by a diverse set of artists influenced by diverse experiences contributes to the dialogue and changes lives and worlds so truly there's the art piece the second piece and this is the piece that I think we really are in the midst of a kind of transformation of the ballet where it just is no longer sufficient to say what you do you have to be able to articulate what you stand for and so kind of a shift and one of the ways we're talking about it is a shift from being able to talk about our core programs to being able to talk about our core values. And I'll give just one example to try to make this a little bit more tangible. But our field has a gender equity problem in many ways similar to the corporate world. So there are lots of women in ballet, lots of women dancers, but choreographers tend to be almost exclusively men. And so women are performing works created by men. And so at Boston Ballet, we've just launched this League and multi-year initiative to try to ship this it's called the choreograph curve initiative it's designed to promote women's vision and leadership in art making starting with the young women in our school and i think it's going to take this kind of commitment to start transforming who's making art to start transforming or continue transforming our organization to keep us relevant
2: yeah it's really important to do some self-reflection and say Okay, this is a problem, but how are we potentially contributing to the problem, whether we intend to or not? And I think often we do get hung up on our intentions about what we mean to do without actually looking and saying, well, let's just look at what we actually have done. We've continued to hire men to choreograph and this needs to change. So how are we going to change that?
3: I think the intentionality, because we're learning a lot about this, so I have a lot to say about it. But a key insight for us has been the intentionality. It's not enough to look in the rearview mirror and say, oh, look at all these ways we have promoted women choreographers. There's really something absolutely critical about looking forward and with intentionality saying over the next three years or five years, here are the things that we are going to be actively doing to make sure we move the needle on this or to try our best to move the needle on this.
2: So I'm going to ask one more question. I'm going to start with Christy, but open it to everybody. And then we are going to actually open it up to questions. Christy, when it comes to bringing your whole self to work, ensuring that you have your personal passions and that you are standing up for what you believe in at work, do you find that it's difficult to stay true to the things that you believe in, especially when you're in the workplace and maybe you might be the Debbie Downer when it comes to bringing up an issue? (laughs) Maybe I'm speaking from all personal experience. I know it's hard, right? When you're in the workplace and you feel passionately about something and everyone's like, yeah, this is a great idea. And you're like, it's <laughs> not a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever felt that way? And how have you balanced that? Yeah,
4: I mean, let's face it. In today's connected world, we're on our email, we're on our cell phones, like your personal life, just okay, I, I leave work at work and... Home at home that it doesn't work anymore, right? We're so just intertwined and merged. And I think we work for people, not companies too. And we tend to trust people who are genuine. And when you trust your teammates, that ultimately will help drive your project moving forward. And so to kind of get to your point, like when you form that trust and you, I, when I brought myself and what's going on in my world around me and those people that I work with have shared with me it gets those negative comments out faster, right? You feel comfortable communicating. Hey, I don't agree with that. You know how the person's going to react because you know their style of communication. And I think with the merging of work and personal life and knowing and if the person can share what's going on and you do too, you might have had a bad day. Yeah, something tragic might be going on in your life. You might not have slept that night. Your child might have been up all night. And I think if you understand a little bit more about that person, then you can. That person's a little bit more flexible about how they may respond to you. I am a woman working in a male-dominated industry, and I will tell you, there's been days of what meetings, day-long meetings, four hours into the meeting, I'm like, I'm the only woman in this meeting. And if I'm dealing with something personal, I'm like, okay, can I tell them, especially if it's very female related, can I actually tell them what's going on? And first I will tell you, I was not open to it. And I recently in the last couple of years had some very specific medical issues going on with me. And I thought I didn't tell a lot of people about these issues, but I was tired. I was distracted. I was impatient. I was on sick leave. And finally, I was just like, okay, I feel like this is really destroying my brand. And I worked for men and my team that people that worked for me were men. And I had to open up and tell them what the issue was. And once I did, they were very patient. And so they didn't flip out like I thought they were going to and be all uncomfortable with the topic. And so I think we have to give men a little bit more credit in those things and be more open. It's really hard (laughs) to do that though.
2: I mean, did they earn it? (laughs) They did. I appreciate you saying that, so I'm going to try. I'm (laughs) really going to try. Yes. They completely
4: did earn it. especially, I'll be honest, I mean, I I had a uh, prophylactic breast mastectomy and I had oophorectomies and those are difficult conversations to have with men. They get all weird and they just don't want to talk about it. (laughs)
2: Yeah. I mean, that takes a lot of courage to have that conversation with a stranger or someone that you don't have a close relationship with. But I do think that that says something about your character that you were brave enough to have that conversation because you knew that it was necessary in order for you to continue to do your work effectively, but also so that they could understand the challenges that you were going through. Does anybody else want to weigh in on this topic before we throw to questions? I will just add that I think when you bring your full self to the table
0: or to any role in any position, I think that people get to experience all of you and it makes it less stressful for you trying to hide certain parts of you. And there is an obligation, I feel, at times when we are, quote unquote, woke, right, to educate others. But one thing that I wanted to say, and it was just kind of going back, is that oftentimes we think we need to know every issue and we need to know about everyone. And and I don't think that's the case. If you work in an environment where you can have a speaker series and bring in the folks that are connected to the different issues, I really recommend that just so that you could hear firsthand about how people are impacted by things that they really care about. And it educates you. And again, it's this process of learning. Because I know for myself, I've been in the field of criminal justice for 20 years. And in that space, I've learned so much. I've worked with girls in the system. I've worked with men that have faced life sentences. I've marched from New York City to DC. I've worked on legislation. And I've also been a movement. Person with Harry Belafonte, meeting with people like the folks that integrated into Little Rock High School, right? Central High School. So there are these two worlds that I was living in that I had to reconcile, that I had to put together. Then in 2017, I decided that I wanted to make sure that the Women's March centered the most marginalized communities and that we brought people who were not traditionally in the women's movement. To the table. And that's when we had reintroduced, right? Because Kimberly Crenshaw, a woman, had introduced and coined intersectionality. We had brought in indigenous women, trans women, all these different folks to the table. And with that being said, I wasn't an expert on all those issues, right? And I wasn't an expert on men's feelings. I was not an expert, but I tried to create a process and it was one of the most difficult processes that I've ever had. And to your point about a team, it's important to have people that support you and have a different vision than you versus those that are aligned with you. Because what we really need to connect on is on our shared values versus our political preferences or our religious preferences. It's really about our shared values that is going to allow us to really show up in our work environments or any type of community to create a positive change.
2: Thank you so much for that.
3: So we do want to have time for some Q&A. Hi, my name is Mariah. And my question is, what is your advice on being a powerful activist and driving change while also keeping things positive? Because I think that it can quickly get negative and a lot of people tend to tune out when something's perceived as negative and you just get sucked into it. So how do you do that and drive change while keeping your tone positive and what you're doing positive?
2: I'll jump in on this one. I think especially when you're talking about important issues, sometimes life and death issues, they're not always going to be positive, right? We're talking about people being oppressed, people needing to be advocated for, people not having the same rights as other people. And I think we have to remind people to not center themselves in those conversations, to say that your feelings are not the priority in a conversation about the mistreatment of someone else. And I think that if you can talk about an issue in a way that you have personally overcome some of your own thinking or a mistake that you have made, that can potentially help rope them into the conversation so it doesn't feel like here's what you need to do. He talked about like, here's a way that I had to shift my thinking. Here is something that I had to unlearn. I think the conversations are going to be difficult. There's really no way around that. But I think that if you can talk to people in a way that encourages them to think solution-oriented versus this is just a problem... This is a problem that's terrible, but how can we make an impact and make a difference to make this better or to educate ourselves so we are more informed on how to support legislation or support companies that are trying to make these things better?
0: I want to just share with you and all of you, we wrote a curriculum called Daring Discussions. It's at daringdiscussions.com and it's to have those courageous conversations. One thing that I advise people is that we should be learning to call in folks versus calling out folks, right? What is your goal for the conversation? Is your goal to be able to build with one another, is your goal to shame somebody, right? So it's really focus on your goal, call in people. My mentor Harry Balafonte always says, you need to meet people where they're at and champion them to your cause, right? So it's not about shaming, it's about really being able to understand and dissect the conversation. And I do recommend go to daringdiscussions.com because it was out of the difficult conversations that we thought it was important to provide people who have these conversations every single day with something to work with. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Okay, why don't we go here in the middle?
2: My question ultimately, as I'm fairly new to the work and Francesca, one of your videos really turned me on to looking at myself and how I'm showing up. And I was in a work meeting and we we're at a table and... People were like joking about stuff that was just not appropriate in my opinion. and Like anyway, and I didn't participate. I didn't laugh, but I didn't say anything. And I walked out. This just happened two days ago and I've been sitting with it on my heart and I just go, how can I look to you guys to say, or you ladies to say, you're setting such a wonderful example for us on how we can speak up. Yeah. Like if you have a suggestion on how, one, I could have approached it differently. And two, what could I do now about yeah. that? I would love your advice. Well, I would say the first thing is don't be too hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. And I say that to you, but I'm truthfully talking to myself because I think we're all a little too hard on ourselves, right? You cannot be all things to everyone. You're not always going to get it right. You are learning. You know. And last night in my keynote, I said, I'm really moving away from the word woke And I'm saying we're more groggy. We're more kind of like trying to figure it out. We're like, okay, now I'm awake. Now I'm kind of like sleepy again, right? And so you're continuously going through this process. So you had an experience where you weren't prepared, right? And so next time you're going to be a little bit more prepared. And I don't think that there's any reason that you can't broach the conversation with those coworkers later on. The same way that you gave the advice of circling back with your boss and saying, I really want to talk to you about this thing. And in many ways, you might be more prepared now because you've gotten some time to really think about like, well, what was it about those comments that made you uncomfortable? How do you wish it had gone differently? So then call that person in and take them aside and say, you know, the other day in that meeting, you said this thing and it really made me uncomfortable and I would really like to talk to you about it. Again, it's this approach of like, let's have a conversation about... And ask the question, right? So you don't have to enter
0: the conversation with, these assumptions, it's more so you could start off the way she said and say, you know, I just wanted to ask you more about why you felt this way about these folks or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Because now you're putting it on them and then they could dissect it too to understand that maybe what they said was probably not
2: right. And I think that that actually, that's one of my favorite techniques, especially when people are making jokes that are inappropriate. I always go, I don't understand the joke. Can you yeah. explain it to me?
0: Yeah, <laughs> and that's also why it's funny. It dis- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it disarms people, right? You want to disarm people. You don't want people to like stop and react to you in a negative way, but more so, like I just wanted to circle back with you. We were sitting in the break room or break room, yeah. and I overheard you, or you directed this. I just wanted to kind of understand a little bit more what you
2: meant by that. And you disarm people. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, shoot, that was really wrong. And again, this is a great opportunity for you to do like your own homework Mm -hmm. beforehand. Mm So what was the thing that they said? Why did it make you uncomfortable? Can you direct them to something to say, well, I'd love it. Thank you for explaining to me where you're coming from. I would love it if you read this article or you looked at this book because this might shift your perspective on this thing. Or This is a voice I needed to hear on this topic. So it can be, again, solution-oriented, which Mm just kind of goes back to the question that was asked a little earlier, but don't beat yourself up over it. You know what I mean? Like you're not perfect. And it's really scary when that happens at work because you're not trying to lose your job. right? (laughs) You're like, oh my gosh, I want to say something, but I don't know how to say something. But next time you will be more prepared. And even if you can't have that deep dive conversation, put in your back pocket, what are some responses that you might say next time to say, hey, I don't really think that that's a good conversation to have at work. I don't think that that's really appropriate. I really wish that you would not use that kind of language around me, especially when we're at work. Just like a quick little thing that you can use to say so that next time, because unfortunately there will be a next time, Mm -hmm. that you're better prepared with how to respond to it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you so
1: We just heard from Carmen Perez, Executive Director of The Gathering for Justice, Max Hodges, Executive Director of the Boston Ballet, Christy Dunchak, Senior Director at Johnson Controls, and online sensation and accidental activist, Francesca Ramsey. To learn more about how you can impact social change and justice, please visit the Resource Center on Confronting Racial Injustice, curated by the Conferences for Women, at www.conferencesforwomen.org. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this session helpful, and we invite you to tune in for more best breakouts from the Conferences for Women.